Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth. After being out of the studio for a couple of weeks, it is good to be back with you in the live setting. And as usual, sitting across the desk from me to answer your questions from the Bible is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan. And it's so good to be back on the broadcast. Thank you so much for those who are listening this evening. We have lots of questions that have come in since the last episode that we had. So we're going to start out. And, Pastor, the first question we have comes from Antigua, very short and to the point. Pastor Murphy, why is there not a book in the Bible called Mary? Well, it it depends on how you look at the Bible. I think it's a very simple answer to that question. There's no book in the Bible called Mary because God did not intend to put a book in the Bible called Mary. Uh, The Bible is God's Word. It is um, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And uh, whatever books are in the Bible are clearly the books that God has preserved and God wants within Scripture. So I I, 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 um, I think that it should be obvious to anyone who takes the Bible seriously that uh, a non-Mary book in the Bible was deliberately uh, not allowed because it was not God's will and not God's intention. Our next question comes from a listener in Trinidad. Uh, and this is a fairly lengthy question, but I'm going to lay some groundwork first. The context is it's a conversation that, Pastor, they would like your thoughts on. And the overall setting is that a child has a dislike to an individual that their mother is seeing. When the child confides in their father about it, he discusses it with the mother who thinks that the father's mind is nasty and he is harassing. It's sad to see the child grow up without two parents, yet even harder living with the new man or the new father, the new dad. And here's uh, some of the more detailed situation. The father writes, Today I was told that my mind is nasty or dirty because I addressed something that bothered me that concerned my daughter, and I genuinely don't know how to feel about it. Number one, my kid said an individual is always trying to talk to her unprovoked. Number two, the individual, to me, makes too much of an interest into my child while the whole time having their own children. Number three, he has my kid call him a childish nickname. Number four, my child has was quarreled with because she refused to talk to said person or spoke to them with an attitude. 
even saying that I encouraged or brainwashed my child to not like the person. And now, when I said I'd like to address the situation with a talk, including the child being present in the room, because I'm genuinely uncomfortable and concerned, I'm told that my mind is nasty and I'm harassing. I really don't know how to feel. So that's the context and (coughs) questions. How is a young man supposed to deal with this matter? Please note that the young man whom... His daughter doesn't like, was previously married, has two kids, and is separated from his wife. His marriage ended on bad terms due to a lot of issues. Is it right for this child to feel this way about the new man in her mother's life? And what can be done to make this work out for them? If Is there any hope? Is it right for the mother to quarrel with the child for being rude to the new man? And what if the child's parental father passes away and the man becomes her father? From a biblical perspective, is this right? I know that's a mouthful, but I'll let you piece it one thing at a time, Pastor. Yeah. The first thing I would say is that um, every father in this generation, in this age, who has a, a young daughter, and I'm not too sure how, you, how old this young lady is, um, ought to be concerned about the welfare uh, of the child, and especially when it is in connection with some person who is now having an affair with an ex-girlfriend or ex-mother of the child. Um, women have a very naive view of life uh, in many ways, uh, they just do not understand the the frequency and the incidence of abuse and how frequent uh, it is. I think the statistics, if I recall correctly, that within I can't speak in regard to the uh, Caribbean, but I know within the U.S., one of uh, one of every four women have spoken about some kind of abuse when they were being brought up, whether by a father, stepfather, an uncle, a cousin. Uh, it's a very, 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 very serious matter. And I think that uh, we should not be naive in this generation because I don't think there's much difference between what happens in America and what happens here in the Caribbean. So I am I am uh, su- suspecting that uh, the father from talking to the young girl probably have heard some information that leads him to be suspicious that this person might have some... Uh, some sexual intent or some kind of relational intent uh, and it could jeopardize the well-being of the child. Um, You know, I counsel married people and I I learn through married people when I have a a data sheet that gives me information about their lives. I am often surprised to discover how frequently uh, they tell me that their first time of exposure to any sexual content had to do with either the mother's boyfriend or some male friend that was uh, in the house or she was sent to some other male friend. And the way that they tell me that it happens, sometimes the person just exposed himself, dropped the pants. Sometimes they put on a blue movie when the child is there uh, with that kind of evil content. Other times they masturbate in front of the child. I'm just telling you what people tell me. Uh, and this is in the Caribbean context. I'm not talking about overseas now. Sometimes they offer financial rewards and uh, even like a cell phone, etc., etc. Wow. Um, so this is a problem that is very, very, 
very common. And uh, any mother that is not concerned and, and, and doesn't think a, a, um, a father should have legitimate concern about a child, especially when a child is around a certain age, and um, her boyfriend is asking the child certain questions, and maybe, as he said, some kind of a silly name. I wonder what that name would be. And uh, the child seemed to be a little bit uneasy with the kind of questions and the kind of things that are happening in that situation. So I think uh, it's okay for the father to be concerned about this matter, and I think any sensible father would have that concern. And I think that um, the child and the mother should get together with the father and discuss this thing very openly. And if there's any dubious behavior or any suspicious behavior or anything that is questionable, I think it ought to be looked at very carefully and examined and discussed among themselves. I don't think the mother should just say that the father's mind is dirty because he has uh, concern over this matter. And if I'm speaking to the father who's listening, I don't think I should let that trouble me. As long as my motive is right and it's my child's welfare that I'm concerned about, uh, I would pose a question to her mother and I will also ask my daughter certain questions that would help me to understand better what is going on. The child is seven years old for context. I don't know if that affects your answer at all. Well, it you know... <laughs> My wife, as you know, went to the Philippines along with the team that went to the Philippines. And we made the shocking discovery that in the Philippines, I don't know about here in the Caribbean, that children as old as four years have been brutally sexualized by fathers, by uncles. They have homes in the Philippines for those kind of girls who have been scarred very, very early in life, far before seven years old. Hmm. So uh, it is, uh, and again, it depends on how well developed the child is. Today, a child at seven might look like she's 10 or 11. So it all depends on those kind of factors. But uh, the the point is that if certain questions are being asked and certain things are being done, that is creating uh, some kind of suspicion. Uh, I think the mother should uh, and the father should get together and deal with this matter as best as possible and try to to, to, uh, to find out what really is going on. Um, uh, in, in terms of what, um, if it can work out, um, that's one of the questions there, if there's hope for the relationship. Uh, I I don't know the whole situation, so I really can't say. Um, I would say this, that you also have to balance what I just said with something else. Children normally resent when there's somebody displacing their parent in the child's life. So if the mother is now finding another boyfriend and the seven-year-old daughter is attached to his father, to her father, uh, I would not be surprised if she does things and says things to try to create some kind of division between uh, her dad and her mom that would stir up some confusion between her mom and this new affair that she's having. So you got you got to balance it that way as well. The other thing is uh, the father as well uh could have a very suspicious mind that is leading him down a, a trail that is really totally imaginary. There may be just nothing that is really there. But I think that um, it is best for both parents to sit down with the child and find out what's going on and let the child f- have the freedom and the liberty to openly express what, their cons- what her concerns are so that the parents can come to some solution as to what the problem is and if there need to be s- some boundaries uh, if something needs to be done of a more serious nature. Um, the, not a question that came up in, in, in there as well, is it, uh, is, the mother, is it right for the mother to quarrel with the child for being rude 
to the new to, to this new person. I would say that rudeness is not a trait that you want to tolerate or cultivate in the life of your child. Uh, and I would um, recommend that the mother have a private conversation with a young girl about being thoughtful and being courteous and being respectful and being kind, even to people that she may have some problems with. Uh, I think also that um, the mother should acknowledge that, that the child is going to have some time adjusting to this new relationship and uh, while this transition period is going on, she can pretty much understand why the child might have some problems accepting the, the, this uh, new friend that she has. But I do feel that uh, she should be told that, that rudeness will not be tolerated and uh, to anybody, period, and that she still ought to be kind and courteous in that regard. Um, so I think that that is what should be done in, in, in respect. In, in terms of the question about... Um, if the person uh, got married and then the father died and the the child um, is now finding herself where she has another father, if that is biblical, well, from a bi- biblical perspective, there's nothing wrong with stepfathers. As a matter of fact, I would say this, that might shock some of you. Most people that go to the altar these days, uh, whether it be a male or female, they have children. So you're going in not to a nuclear family, you're going to a blended family. So in many marriages, at the commencement of many marriages today, uh, either the father has children and therefore you're going to get a stepmother, or the mother has children and the man is going to have a stepchildren. So there's nothing wrong in having a, a stepfather. However, I would caution people who are going into marriage with children that you're going to face problems and complications that were not designed to be faced when you went into initial marriage. You bring you, you inherit problems when you go into a marriage where you already have children. I'm not saying it can't work, but I'm saying that's not the norm that God intended. God's plan for humankind and God's blueprint for marriage is that when a man and woman go to the altar, there's no immorality and there's no children involved. That's God's plan. You can't violate God's plan without facing some major issues along the way. Uh, but unfortunately, we are living in such an immoral society that to make those kind of statements, we seem quite bizarre and quite out of touch with reality. But God's Word is never out of touch with reality. God's Word uh, is, 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 is truth. And uh, when God speaks to a matter, the wisdom, our wisdom, is to submit to what God teaches because uh, there are always repercussions and consequences when we violate what God's intention were. So uh, there's nothing wrong in having a stepfather. And I think that there are many stepfathers who are being very successful in, in helping with children. However, you've also got a lot of situations where it turned out to be very bizarre. You mentioned in the um, missive that you sent as well that the uh, man has been married already. He has two children. You also mentioned that when the marriage broke up, it ended up, uh, it was some very bad situation. Uh, I would say to the person who's contemplating marrying a person who's divorced, chances are that second marriage doesn't last as long as the first one. And it's, uh, very seldom is the second marriage a marriage of longevity. Because you didn't learn to deal with the problems in the first marriage, you carry those over into the second marriage. The other thing is, this person already has two children. Uh, I would be, I would want to know what relationship he has with his children, because if I'm going to go into a marriage, and he doesn't take care of his two children, he's got how in the world is he going to take care of the one I'm bringing into the marriage? The other thing is, if he has a daughter. 
what is his relationship with his daughter? Is he very close to his daughter? Why is he not close to his daughter? He wants to be close to my daughter. And in other words, there are a lot of issues that need to be looked at and looked at objectively without becoming blinded because there's some kind of a romantic cloud over your eyes that you can't see into these kind of issues. I think these are vital issues that need to be to be, to be looked at. I don't know if I answered uh, all of the questions that uh, uh, along that line. If there are any that you think I missed, maybe you could um, raise them and I will respond to them. Thank you to the individual who sent in that very heartfelt question. And it's great to know that the Bible and the biblical principles in the Bible apply to our life situations, even in the year 2021. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 748. This is a live interactive call-in program, and there are a number of ways that you can interact with us. You can call and be put live on the air. 268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, we'd still love for you to send in your question via WhatsApp or text message. If it is something specific that you don't want to be addressed, your location or your island, or even that you're in the Caribbean, just make a note as part of the question at the beginning, and we will be sure to keep it completely anonymous. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1450. I don't know how you're listening to us tonight, whether it's on AM, FM, or online at our website, or maybe it's on Facebook Live. No matter how you're joining us, we are honored that you have taken time out of your Tuesday evening to be part of the program and to interact with us. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and then right there on your device, you can watch behind the scenes, you can listen to the program, and you can also comment your questions, your concerns, or a suggested future topic, and it'll be passed along in a timely manner. Pastor Murphy, the next question is from Antigua. Pastor Murphy, when the Bible said, the Holy Ghost will come upon you and speak in other tongues, is not this tongues for today? Please explain. Well, first of all, I think you've really misquoted the Bible. There's nowhere, no scripture anywhere that says that the Holy Ghost will come upon you and you'll speak in tongues. It doesn't say that. It says the Holy Ghost will come upon you and you receive power and you should be witnesses unto me. So I think you've actually misquoted the scripture. However, uh, it is a fact that when the Holy Spirit came um, on the day of Pentecost, uh, tongues will accompany the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's also true that when the Samaritans were accepted into the kingdom, that tongues were exhibited there as well. And it's also true that when the Gentiles were accepted into the kingdom, that there was an exhibition of tongues. So there seemed to be a, a, a clear connection between the coming of the Holy Spirit, both in the case of the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. Uh, but some people have associated that every time the Holy Spirit comes, therefore, uh, there must be tongues. That is a false connection, and the, to make that a concomitant as a result of the first one uh, is one of the big mistakes. I want to say, if, having said that, I want to say a few things about tongues. <clears throat> first of all, what's the real purpose of tongues? We're given that purpose in Corinthians chapter 14, 21, and 22. Nathan, can you read that for us, please? First Corinthians 14, 21, and 22. Those verses read as follows. In the law it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips I will speak unto this people. And yet, for all that will, for all that 
will they not hear me, saith the Lord? Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. But prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Okay, clearly um, Paul points out, and he quotes from Isaiah, that God would give Israel a sign, the unbelieving Israel. When he started this uh, new movement called Christianity, which called the Way, uh, it was a clear sign <clears throat> to the unbelieving Jews that this was an authentic work of God. And that was a sign designed. Specific. That's why in the day of Pentecost, you read that uh, you got Jews from all over the world. Uh, I forgot how many places I mentioned, but remember that these are proselytes. These are Jews that hold into the Old Testament economy, Old Testament law. And it's on that occasion when the, when the Holy Spirit came and the church was founded in the day of Pentecost, you find that the apostles are able to speak uh, in tongues in the different languages of those people who were there visiting at that particular point in time. And everyone said, you know, we, how can we hear, hear this preaching in our language when all these that speak are Galileans? But notice that it's the Jews that are there. Uh, that uh, this 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 is a sign to the Jews that the prophecy of Isaiah was fulfilled, and that God was now uh, uh, bringing this sign to them that He was bringing about a, a new movement in terms of, of Christianity. The other thing is that tongues serve as a purpose of witness. In Acts chapter two, uh, as this spoke the word. The men said, we hear these men glorify God in our own language. And clearly, as Paul points out, it's not for the believer, but for the unbeliever. It's a witness to the unbeliever as well. So it's for the purpose of witnessing. Uh, Thirdly, <clears throat> same that tongues were um, temporary, what I call temporary confirmatory gifts that authenticated the apostles in their message and in their ministry. Uh, if you look at Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, uh, it talks about certain sign gifts that confirm uh, the authenticity of the apostles. Hebrews 2, 3 and 4? Yeah. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first <coughs> begin to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Verse 4, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. You notice that they mentioned that there were confirmatory gifts. The, the gifts were given, sign gifts, to confirm the authenticity of this new movement. Remember that Christianity was born out of the bowels of Judaism, and it was to supersede Judaism. And remember, there was always a challenge between Judaism and Christianity. And uh, even the Apostle Paul taught Christianity was an uh, was an uh, was an imposition, and was uh, was not true and authentic, and it was contrary to the Jewish faith. And he himself sought to destroy it. Uh, when he got converted, of course, um, that all changed. And as he went about, God gave him sign gifts, and uh, he was preaching the gospel, and these sign gifts were given to confirm uh, the authenticity of his message was from God. So it, it, is, it was there to, uh, as a, a confirmatory means of authenticating the message of the apostles. And then uh, if we say that the gift of tongues has not ceased, because I'm a cessationist, that it, it continues, uh, well, let's look at what we, we're seeing today in the churches, because what we're seeing today in the churches, there's no comparison to what the apostle talks about. Sorry. 
Pastor, we have a call here from Antigua uh, wanting to get your thoughts on a topic. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good evening. Good evening, sir. Uh, Pastor Murphy, I want you to clarify something to me, and then after that, I want to make an observation right. based on a sermon from one of the pastors here that come to the CRL. Okay, what's uh, <coughs> There's a bit of confusion, even my politicians say in Antigua, spare not the rod and spoil the child. Mm -hmm. Some politicians are saying that uh, it is not really about child children. It's about the shepherd uh, trying to keep the sheep <coughs> or his flock under control. I have my personal views about that. What do you think about that? And after that, I'll make another statement. I would say the politicians should stick with politics because that's their calling. Their calling is politics. It's not biblical exposition. It's not um, expounding the word, teaching the word. So I think they should stick with politics and et cetera. The, the truth of the matter is I'm going to deal with this, um, this whole matter of um, uh, child discipline in one of the programs. We were supposed to do it about two weeks ago, and I'm not sure we could get to it tonight, but I'm going to do a, one or two programs on that. And we're going to go through the, the, uh, the book of Proverbs and other parts of the Bible uh, to show you very clearly that the use of the rod uh, to discipline a child is not only biblical, it's scriptural, and it, it, it has its purpose. It, it's not, it, and by the way, the problem with these politicians is that they like to use words that are very pejorative. Uh, you talk beating a child and uh, punishing a child. No, the word is discipline a child, different thing. The use of a word could convey ideas that are not intended to be, and they convey certain things that make people repulsive of what you're talking about. But uh, look, all of us who have brought up in the, my, my generation, your generation, all of us benefited from the discipline of our parents. We are better people today because of the discipline of our parents. I got I got whipped with, I mean, I didn't just get whipped with a belt. I got whipped with some things I probably, my mom should never whip me with. But I don't blame her for that. I don't think she made me a worse person. She didn't make me violent. She made me a better person. So when I hear these people talking about if you whip a child and make him want to hit somebody, and want, somebody it's stupidity. It's total stupidity. But here's the problem, see, and I said I would say this. All of this idea came from experimentation in psychology. And all of these psychologists, by the way, that are pushing all of these ideas are atheists. They're humanistic people who do not believe in God. They believe in evolution. And they experiment on animals and then transfer that data to, hum to, to, to humans. One of the experiments that it did uh, and that has led to this total nonsense that they're talking about is that they were trying to get a rat run through a maze uh, and, uh, and see how fast he could get from one point to the other. So what they discovered is that if they shot the rat, that was one way to see how soon we get to, to his out of it. That was one way. And the other way was that instead of shocking him, give him something positive, something to eat. They discovered that when they gave him something positive to eat, the, the rat escaped uh, sooner. So they came to the conclusion that any kind of negative uh, reinforcement is wrong. No, human beings are not rats, okay? We have a, a mind, we have a soul, we have a conscience. So they've transferred that data from dealing with rats 
to human beings and believe now that the best thing to do is to not to have any what they call negative reinforcement, which is licks, but give the child everything positive, everything positive. So we, we must do away now with any kind of negativity at all. It is total nonsense, total stupidity, and just totally ridiculous. And a lot of this teaching is so contrary to God's word. And here's my point. I, I might say this. We have people who are politicians who claim to be Christians. They leave their Christianity at home when they go into politics. Because I cannot understand that I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I read my Bible, I understand God's word, and I don't carry my religion into politics. My religion must influence my politics. So it cannot, but it seems to me that they keep religion in the church, keep it in the home. It doesn't belong outside the church. But the Bible says the believer is the light of the world, not the church. That is where we are effective in the world. We carry our influence in the world uh, to try to restrain evil and, and give people light and direction in which to go. Now, this thing is going to affect Christian schools. And uh, this is one of the great battles we're going to have to fight uh, as far as this whole matter is concerned. And I think if we give in into this, this battle, we are going to lose uh, other battles because there are other things that are coming down the line that's coming into the school as a result of decisions government's going to make, like the the LBGT agenda when it comes mm-hmm. to teaching uh, children. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. coming. That's coming from, from, mm-hmm. from four right through. That's not going to be in the Christian school, I can tell you right now. But if we lose this battle and we keep giving in and giving in, giving in, the point is we will no longer have a Christian school. We will no longer be able to hold the Christian principles. We might have just closed down the school and let the government run the school. And that's where it is headed if this nonsense doesn't stop and government respect the fact that parents give to the church, the Christian school, the right to discipline their children. This, the Christian school is an extension of the home and the church. It yeah. is part of the educational process. And we ask parents to give us the right uh, to discipline the child when there is need. Now, we, we, don't, we don't brutalize children. We don't take advantage of children. But when a child needs a, a, a whipping because of rudeness and disrespect and complete disregard for the teacher and stuff like that, it's right and proper. But it's not, that's not, what, that's not uh, you know, it's not something you do every day or every week. But there are times when it is needed. Every one of us knew that we needed a licking at some point in time. <laughs> I so I have a problem with these uh, politicians. I think they should stick with politics and leave moral work and spiritual work to God's people and the church and the home. And they just stick with politics and economics, but leave the moral and the spiritual to the, to the church and to the home. Pastor Murphy, it would be nice if in the future you have a, a program on it. I, I'm planning to do something on it. On as I told you, I, I was planning to do that before I had I came down with a, a cold. So I think in the, probably the next two weeks, I'm going to do maybe one or two programs on it. And I'm, I'll talk to parents about how to discipline the child as well. When you're whipping a child, how do you do it? Oh, uh, do and it. then Correct. what do you, what do you do after the child is whipped? Because it's one thing to whip the child, but you have to reaffirm your love for the child. You should you should not whip a child. The child's crying and bawling for that. You hug the child, you embrace the child, you explain to the child why you did what you did, explain to the child that you love the child, and explain to the child how you avoid having this encounter again. Every child who experiences that kind of discipline will rise up in in, in the future and call their mother blessed. So, look... I... I believe in corporal punishment. Yeah. But um, I am a school teacher, and yeah. I personally say that do not punish the child when you're angry. Oh, no. I agree with that. Fine. I agree with that. Okay, so 
Sirs, I have something that is quick. I don't want to take a No, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Your time. No. Um, I heard uh, there is a church, uh, whether it's North or South Carolina, uh-huh. um, Cornerstone Baptist. Uh-huh. And it's a couple of days ago. I don't know if um, Brother Nathan heard about it. I was listening uh-huh. to the pastor. Uh-huh. And I, I, I just can't believe that some Americans would insult a pastor, whether it's by letter or by text or what, because he said that he wasn't sure if it was something he said during the church service or so, but whether it's a letter or a text, uh-huh. the, the, the person wrote him back or commented by text some vulgar language, the F and the as and I just can't believe that's a disrespectful man of God. Well, um, all I would say to you, it happens. Uh, and not just in Cornerstone Baptist Church, it happens. It happened in churches as well. But the Bible uh, tells you quite frankly that the, the proper way to deal with matters like that is to go directly to the pastor. The pastor, look, pastors are not perfect. They, they make mistakes. They say things they shouldn't say sometimes. But the proper thing to do when that happens is to request, Pastor, could I have a word with you afterwards, or can we have a meeting this week and we discuss whatever it is? And then you 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 state your concerns, whatever it is, and maybe you can get some kind of clarity. If there's an apology that needs to be made, an apology will be made, etc., etc. But this uh, rude, uh, total disrespect and uh, confrontation of that nature, uh, it is not only in Scripture, it is wrong. Uh, It's even wrong to confront even your mother or your parent like that, even a teacher ought to have respect for this, from a student if he uh, says something or the teacher does something that's wrong. You just don't tear a teacher in front of the students or be disrespectful. But, you know, we're living in an uncouth generation that doesn't have any manners. And the reason why that has happened is because parents have gone away from using the Bible in their upbringing of their children to read Scripture and explain Scripture with the kids and, and set certain protocols for the children. So we're living in a generation that really was is brought up now, a lost generation that really totally biblically illiterate. And Can I ask a quick question? Uh-huh. Before I am... Um, sure, go ahead. Do you think that... Um Globally, it is because prayer and Bible reading is not in the school? Well, I, I can tell you this. I, I feel that it's vitally important to have devotions in, in the school. Um, I think the teachers should have it with the students. I think periodically they should have it. When I was a boy going to a secular school, now this is not a Christian school, uh, every morning we had singing and prayers and we had a challenge that was given by either the headmaster, deputy headmaster, one of the teachers. Look, there are times when I hear songs that are being played in our church. And you know where, where those songs, I learned those songs? When I was in school. It just brings back so many floods of memory of what used to be when I was a boy going to school. And this is not a Christian school I'm talking about. This was a government school. Uh, and a private school as well. It was very, very common. I taught four years in school in Barbados, and every school that I taught in, we had morning prayers, and we have morning devotions, and we had singing. That was standard. We are now living in such a secularized society. And I I look, I think part of the problem is that Christians have just not gotten involved 
in PTA meetings and get involved and, and, and uh, really be part of the solution. We forgot that we're the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Wherever there's darkness, there needs to be light. Wherever there's corruption, there needs to be salt. That's where we should be actively involved. And I think that is what has happened. Remember that, look, the amount of atheists in this world, I think it's like 6 or 7%. The vast majority of people are theists. They believe in God. They believe in. They don't have. They may not believe the same God that we believe in. I thought people generally believe in, in in a supreme being. The people who are pushing this uh, secular agenda upon us are in the minority, but they are in the minority. The majority when it comes to rulership, because Christians have not understood that their calling is not just in the church. Uh, not every man is called to be a pastor. But certainly a man could, look, if believers were like in, in the days of the Puritans, etc., where they were poly- parliamentarians, and they carried their religion into parliament, that's why uh, Wilberforce and Granville Sharp and all of these, uh, Zachary and all those guys were able to bring down slavery in England, not only bans uh, the slave trade, but got rid of the sl- uh, slavery in England. It was these men who were Christians that went into parliament. And use their Christianity to bring the the, the, the uh, to whip the conscience of the, uh, the the English people, wake it up to the evil and the atrocities of slavery. It was these men that did it, but they did it in Parliament. See, but the problem yeah. is we got politicians today that claim to be religious, but they're not very serious. Their religion is packaged at home, and when they go to the going to Parliament, they forget that they they're Christians and what the Bible teaches on these matters. I'm not saying that we ought to. We're not trying to create a theocracy. But they're biblical principles that have bearing on political decisions that uh, that should be brought to the attention of those who are making those kind of laws and decisions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We just can't ignore God and ignore God's word and expect our country to be blessed. Thank you, sir. You're welcome, sir. And thanks so much for calling. Really appreciate that. Have a great night. Thank you for calling. That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. We're broadcasting from the island of Antigua on 1160 AM, 92.3 FM, and online at www.radiolighthouse.org. You can also join us for this program on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your questions right there on your device while listening to the program and watching behind the scenes. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.10. Pastor, you were talking about uh, tongues. Yes, I um, getting back on track. I mentioned that the purpose of tongues, basically, it was a sign gift to the unbelieving Jews because God was going to leave the Jewish dispensation, Judaism, and now he was starting um, the Christian faith and starting Christianity. And they needed uh, to have some basis to understand why this was a movement of God. And God had prophesied in the book of Isaiah that he would one day do this with tongues, and he'd be assigned to these unbelieving Jews that God is now uh, starting a new dispensation, which is the dispensation of grace or the church, basically. And then I talked about the fact that um, the, the, the whole purpose of it, um, basically, was also for witnessing uh, we see that in Acts chapter number two, where they are um, use it to declare the, the glory of God and the, uh, the gospel, and uh, they did it in different languages, different tongues, etc., etc. The third thing I, I pointed out that some of these gifts were confirmatory gifts to authenticate the apostles. Remember, these are men 
that are now going preaching uh, something completely different than the law. They're now preaching great what is just today. For example, let's suppose that a, a person is not a secessionist, that he believes that all the gifts of the Bible are permanent and that they're, they continue until our Lord returns. I can't dispute that because it's a matter of interpretation. However, if you take that position, uh, then you have to follow the regulations that are given in the Bible in respect to tongues because the Holy Spirit, who is the one that gives the gifts, is the same one that gives the regulations in the New Testament relative to the use of tongues. And if you look at Corinthians chapter 14, uh, Nathan, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 27 and 28, um, you'll see that Paul makes certain stipulations and uh, in terms of the reg- regulatory framework in which tongues were supposed to be used if it was used within the church. And if you read verse 27 and 28, um, could you read that, please? First, First Corinthians 14, 14. Uh-huh. 27 and 28 says, yeah. If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, by three, and that by course, and let not, and let one interpret. Verse 28, <clears throat> But if there be no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. So notice, quite frankly, that when it comes to the church, basically, Paul puts three limits on the use of tongues. Number one, he said, look, if you're going to have tongues in church, you only have must have either two or three at the most. Okay? So you either have two or three at the most. That's the maximum amount. Secondly, Paul said it must be done. How is it to be done? If it's done by course, there must be a sequence. They can't get up and speak at the same time. One speaks, the other one speaks, and then the third one. So there must be some order. And then thirdly, Paul says, there must be an interpreter. And Paul says, if there's not an interpreter, let these people shut up in the church, keep silence in the church. That's not what we're seeing uh, in the church today. Now, the question is this. If tongues is practiced today, it's violating these very guidelines and regulatory framework that the, the Scriptures give. How can this be believed to be of God? The Holy Spirit doesn't lead you to do something contrary to His Word that He's revealed to you how to do it if you want to do it. And that's my problem. And and what I see happening in terms of tongues today, um, none of these churches are practicing the biblical model, and therefore it is contrary to Scripture. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. But real quickly before I do, let me just mention to the individual who sent in that question about tongues, we appreciate you sending in your question. We don't have time to detail it in complete, exhaustive fashion, but we have three episodes that we previously did that are dedicated specifically to that topic. Uh, Episode number 20, number 21, and episode number 22. And to find those, you can go to Google and just type in That's Truth Podcast, and you can choose your provider, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, or you can go to our website, www.radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second picture that you see. It's a large microphone right in the center. There is a circle that says podcast. Click on that, and then you'll see That's Truth Podcast is one of our three podcasts there. And you can click on the archive and go to episode number 20, 21, and 22. And those talk in. Thank you for calling That's Truth. And go ahead with your question, please. Good night, Pastor. Hi, how are you doing, Mr. Williams? How are you doing, sir? Better than you, better than you, uh-huh. Good night. Good to hear your voice again. Yeah, 
now let me see what it took two weeks. <laughs> How can we help you tonight, sir? Yeah, uh, let me tell you, first, uh, in Second Samuel, chapter 11, uh -huh. verse 3 to 10, about David. Uh -huh. uh, when Bathsheba said and tell him that she was with child, and then he sent for her husband uh -huh. to lie with her. Uh -huh. How she didn't know she was a child, and then how oh, she David, didn't know she was child. Yeah, and when I went, David sent her husband to sleep with her, and the husband decided uh, to sleep out okay. in the camp with the well, soldiers. Let me respond to that. First of all, <clears throat> she knew she was with child, and then when she told David she was with child, David was trying to pass this one on to the husband. That's what David was trying to do. David was trying to cover up. Here's a man who was in David's army. A uh, faithful servant of David to be walking on the balcony of his, his, his roof when he should be out to war. He decides to take a, a leisurely moment, uh, enjoy a brief vacation, not knowing that idleness is the devil's opportunity. And the moment David goes on top of the roof, he just peeps over a few houses down the road and he sees a woman bathing and she's naked. And he's completely attracted by this woman, and he just can't get this woman off his mind. No doubt he goes to sleep, and he's just dreaming and dreaming, and then he takes her, and he, he lies with her, and she becomes pregnant. But I don't think David... But, Pastor, do you believe the husband had any idea of that, that he refused to go to sleep before he was dropping? No, no, that, that was what David... The man doesn't even know David has slept with his wife, and his wife is pregnant. But David said, when David learned that she's pregnant now, David decided, look, let me bring him home. Let me get this man to go to sleep with his wife so that he would believe he's the father of the child. It was a, a work of... Uh, deception, dubious deception. David is at its worst in this case, but that's what happens with people when they do something that's wrong, try to cover up. And that's what David did. He tried to cover up. And you can't see that episode in David's life and not see him as the most despicable human being that you could ever conceive. Because after the man refuses to go home, David got the man drunk, hoping that the man would go home. Imagine that. He's doing all of this to cover up his tracks. But then the man doesn't even go home. The man is still at David's. So what are you going to do now? Well, he can't let this man find out that his wife is pregnant. The man has been at war. He would know that somebody's... So what does David do? Next step, David writes a letter, a letter of death to Joab and tells Joab, look, when this guy comes back, I want you to go to war and put him in the front and when the, you're attacked by the other side, you just withdraw yourself and let him be killed. So he's covering up his adultery now by another sin. It's called murder, see? But that's what happens. When you get one sin and you don't want to be discovered, you cover it up. And, it, and it's worse than the first sin. And that's exactly what happened with David. But that, so it's really a cover-up that was going on, and, and, and that's why David um, called the woman. But again, faithful man, he's carrying his death warrant and writing back to Joab thinking that he's going to be promoted or David is commending him some sort, not knowing that David has actually written his death in that letter. It's one of the most despicable episodes in the Bible, and it shows you how far a man could go when he gets away from God and he gets involved in sin, what he's capable of doing. Yeah, but Pastor, why I find in that legal why did he disobey the king order? Did the king send him home to his wife? Why, why did he disobey? Because of his loyalty. Remember what he said? How can I go home and sleep with my wife when my, my army, my men are at war, dying, and I going home and sleep in a bed with my wife? That's a man of 
tremendous loyalty. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. See, so that's what it is. He's a man that is so faithful. He's probably David's most faithful friend. And David, a faithful, faithful warrior, uh, and, and David now finds himself in a situation again. That is how human beings are. When we get do something that is wrong, and we are about to be dis- that's why a, a, a thief goes into a house not to kill you. He goes in and steals you, but you comes home and he finds you, and you find him. He knows that if you report it to the police, you're gonna be locked up. So he now would try to kill you to cover up the fact that he is in your. He didn't go to kill you. But many, many times he will kill you to cover up the fact that he doesn't want to be discovered as a thief. It is the best part of human nature, uh, and that's what happened with David. So let him that take his stand, take lead, uh, stand of take heed, lest he fall. We've got to remember that anything any man has done, we are capable of doing if we get out of God's will. So let us stick close to the Lord and live by his word. Amen. And Pastor, I want to take a, a short time to tell you thank you for the the vanilla pray for the young lady she's back home with a child and she's doing she's recovering very good praise the lord praise the lord mm-hmm. for that and the the, the, uh, the team here at the radio here has been praying for her as well yeah, so thank you so much for that god, vanilla, yeah. god, god bless you god bless yeah, you sir. say hi to the wife i do that okay <laughs> thanks god bless all right bless you. But I need to take care. thank you very much and thanks for the update on the prayer request we Rejoice to hear how the Lord answers prayer in his perfect timing. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 821. The name of the program is That's Truth, and the voice that you hear answering your questions from the Bible is that of Pastor Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church here in Antigua. Pastor, the next question. I, I want to yeah. I, I want to make two other points quickly about the tongues thing yeah. hurriedly. The other thing I'd like to say is that it's not only Christians that speak in languages, tongues. Okay. Okay. People who are demon possessed speak in tongues. Okay. And when I remember that tongues is a human language because in the book of Acts chapter two, these people are from different parts of the world and they're hearing the apostles speak in their language. And let's remember that even. Uh, Cultic groups, like the Mormons, they speak in tongues. So don't think that this is something unique in, in terms. So that's why you have to be very careful about this tongues movement. Uh, it is inconceivable that, um, that we must not assume that the tongues that we're witnessing is the tongues that are approved by God. That's the point I'm making. Uh, the other thing is that the tongues movement has become a ecumenical glue that has brought so many different groups that don't even believe song Bible doctrine together. One wonders why uh, a movement like this uh, would uh, bypass song biblical truth, and it becomes the core center of bringing these different groups together. So there's uh, there's need for us to think this thing very clearly to make sure that what we are seeing is of God, and don't forget that the devil can imitate what God does and we need to be very very careful you're not being led down a track that leads us away from God into heresy and false teaching our next question comes from Antigua uh, has some deep elements to it good evening pastor did God know that Lucifer would have fallen from grace and also that man would have sinned if he knew why then did he create us I have been an ardent listener to That's Truth over the past three months. Look, you're now asking us to go into the realm of mystery and and try to probe into God's mind uh, about certain matters and to find out why he did what he did. Uh, I would say to you that when you come to the point where 
God has not revealed certain things to us, all we end up is in human speculation. And uh, let's, let's, let's be very honest. We cannot comprehend the infinite God with our finite minds. The other fact that we need to be very much aware is that God has kept certain secrets from us. There are certain things that God has revealed, and there are also things that God has kept secret from us. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29, uh, Nathan. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reads as follows. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So clearly there are two things that we're told there. There are things that God has revealed and the things that God has kept secret. And when you go into the scriptures, you'll find that God has revealed uh, about himself and about his attributes and his character and his plan. Uh, there is two ways that God has done that. God has revealed uh, himself to man through what is called general revelation, and that is through creation, that is through our conscience. Uh, that is how God has revealed himself uh, through general revelation. But God has also revealed himself through special revelation. That is through his word, that is through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, beyond that, uh, what God has not, what God, uh, whatever comes outside of that, God has kept secret from us. So we can only enter the realm of speculation uh, when we go into that that field. There's another verse I would like to uh, ask Nathan to read, Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, and then I will give another re- respond more cl- uh, directly to the question. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. Verse 9 For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So clearly, uh, not only has God kept back certain secrets from us, but God lets us know very clearly that his knowledge and his understanding and his thoughts are far superior to ours, and therefore we cannot expect to totally comprehend everything that God has uh, what God does or what, why God has done what he's done um, having said that um, I would like to just make a few comments on the, on the question did God know that Lucifer would fall man would fall of course he knew unless you're going to put some kind of limitation on God and his knowledge we believe that God is omniscient so therefore God knows everything from the beginning and, and, and from the end uh, so we cannot diminish God uh, in attempt to vindicate and give an explanation as to why he would have done what he's done. The truth of the matter is that uh, God is omniscient. He knows everything. And uh, as one writer has said, God knows all things, whether actual or possible, whether to be past, present, or future. And he knows them perfectly from all eternity. So therefore, the answer to your question is, he knows that. He knows things immediately, he knows things simultaneously, and he knows things exhaustively, and he knows things truly. He also knows the best way to attain his desired ends. That's the kind of God that we serve. So, having said that, yes, he did know that this would happen, and uh, he knows what men would do even before men do it. For example, in First Samuel chapter 23, look there for just a moment, 
uh, verse 11 and 12, 1 Samuel chapter 23, verse 11 and 12. It says, Will the men of Keilah deliver me up into his hand? Will Saul come down as thy servant hath heard? O Lord God of Israel, I beseech thee, tell thy servant. And the Lord said, He will come down. Then said David, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver thee up. Yeah, so notice he he knows what the devil is going to do, but he also knows what man will do before man does it. Because David is asking, Lord, should I go to Keilah? What are they going to do? Are they going to protect me? Are they going to fight against me? Are they going to deliver me to Saul? And God said, if you go there, that's exactly what's going to happen. So he knows what is possible, what what would eventually come to pass if certain steps are taken. He, he can see that before it even happens. Uh, you remember he's, our Lord said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 21, that if the things that he did in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Yeah. So he knew what would have happened if the same events that occurred in the New Testament occurred. You remember what he said? The same would have happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have repented if the things that he did uh, in Sodom, they would have caused the Sodomites to repent. Now imagine that for just a moment. You know, sometimes you think that Sodomites are the worst people in the world. But here are the Jews who are seeing all these miracles, hearing all of this great teaching, and reject the Messiah. And the Messiah says, if I did what I'm doing, among you, among the Sodomites and the Gomorrah people, they would have repented. So who really, is, what kind of a heart, really, when you, when you think about these things? Is, so we got to, how we look at things and how we judge things is not the same way that God judges. So God knows, and then God knows the future. Uh, it's very, very clear, for example, in Isaiah chapter 44, uh, 26 to 45, verse 7. Our Lord knew about 300 years before Cyrus would come on the scene, and he called Cyrus by name uh, that he would be on the scene. And then in Daniel chapter 2, 7, and, and, and chapter 2, the Lord gives the whole profile of world history from the Babylonian kingdom until this whole world is wrapped up in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. He tells you exactly what kingdom will come into power, and he even tells you in the end time there'll be a ten-nation confederate, confederate. He knows the entire future. Um, so clearly, uh, God knows. But God's prescience or God's knowledge in itself is not causative. Because he knows it, it doesn't mean that he causes it. And that's where people... It's like foreknowledge. Doesn't mean that uh, because God foresees something, uh, God forces it to happen. He sees it before it happens, but He's not coercive to make it happen. Uh, and that's where we need to be very, 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 very careful when it comes uh, to this matter. So I am saying to you, yes, you know, next question is why then did He create man? And that's a very good question. Well, uh, again, I am limited to what Scripture says. I can't go outside Scripture. If I go outside Scripture, I end up in the realm of speculation and just using my hypotheses, okay? So when we come to Scripture, uh, we find that it is very, very clear that man was created and all of creation was created for God's glory, to display God's glory. Um, I, I'll just give you some text that... Um, uh, we don't have time to go through all of these texts, but Psalm 8, 1, Psalm 19, 1, Isaiah 40, verse 5, Isaiah 66, verse 19, Luke chapter 2, verse 9, and Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, makes it very clear that the goal of all things in creation is to display God's glory. That's the whole purpose of this one. And then God created even the, the order 
uh, of, the, of, of our creation was designed to bring glory uh, to God. So um, everything is done ultimately to bring glory to God. I feel, and this is just my own personal opinion, venturing in a territory I try to avoid, but I'm going to do it. I do feel that humankind is wrapped up in how God is going to justly deal with Satan and his treacherous group who uh, um, committed treason against heaven. I think it would be seen by the universal uh, creation that when God deals with Satan and his emissaries, that he would have done it justly. And I think that man is going to be part of the process by which God vindicates his justice in dealing with Satan. I just feel that man has that important role of trying to vindicate, uh, God vindicate his righteousness in dealing with uh, uh, Satan in the future, that the whole world will see the justice of what God is going to do when he confines into eternal uh, damnation. I think man has that significant role in helping to vindicate God's righteousness because remember that Satan not only rebelled against God and, and created uh, insurrection against God, uh, he actually uh, brought man into sin. And I think that uh, in, in dealing with in God's justice, in dealing with, with Satan, I think man is going to play a role as far as vindicating God's justice in dealing with the enemy. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.33. Thank you to those of you who have sent in questions already. Thank you for those who have called. This is a live interactive program, and there are a number of ways you can interact with us. You can call and be put live on the air. The phone number is 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Take note that those two numbers are different numbers. And you can also join us on Facebook Live. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page. Click on the Facebook Live video feed, and you can comment your questions there. Pastor, our next question uh, comes from a listener here in Antigua. They'd like to hear your views on an excerpt from a book entitled Apocalypse Code written by Hank Hanegraaff, and the excerpt is as follows. There is therefore no evidence that the apostles believed that the Jewish people still had a divine right to the land, or that the Jewish possession of the land, or that the Jews of the land would be important, let alone that Jerusalem would remain a central aspect of God's purpose for the world. On the contrary, Jerusalem and much of the land has now been superseded. They have been made irrelevant <laughs> in God's redemptive purposes. End of quote. Pastor, what are your thoughts of that from a biblical perspective? Well, number one, I was shocked when I first read it because I have the book by uh, Christianity in Crisis, and it's written by the same guy, Hanegraaff, uh, and it's a super, superb book. Uh, but I, uh, I I could not believe when I was reading the comments. And also, uh, Norman Geisler, uh, if you go on normangeisler.com, he did a review of the same book, The Ap uh, Apocalypse Code. And I would think that is, for my, for, in my judgment, the most profound analysis of the contents of that book. I would recommend anybody who's uh, uncertain about it to, to read that book. But... Um, the thing about um, ha uh, Hanegraaff is that he is a millennialist. Okay. Okay. 
he also holds to the preterist view of Bible interpretation of prophecy. So he believes that revelation is already t- took place uh, before 70 AD. Wow. Okay. So he doesn't believe that revelation has anything to do with the future, basically. Uh, it is a incredible. Um, I, I have not only, I have two other books by him on Bible questions, I have on my um, Kindle. I found him to be an extremely good writer, but when it comes to prophecy, he's lost, completely lost. And that his book, quite frankly, uh, the Apocalyptic Code, is a classic example of prophetic confusion because he cannot understand the Book of Revelation if he doesn't understand the role that Israel is going to play in the, in the future. He takes all the promises made in the Old Testament, all the prophetic promises made about Israel, he transferred to the church. It is called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. And that's where all of his false arguments that he has in the book, and all of his confusion, and the kind of the bizarre statements that he just makes, that's where it comes from, because he has no place for Israel. For example, the Seventh-day Adventists have no place for Israel either. They don't believe that Israel has any role, so they're confused about prophecy as well. The Jehovah's have no place for Israel. Reformed theologians Reformed Church pretty much also don't have any place for Israel, so they're also confused about Bible prophecy. But uh, to answer the, 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 the uh, to, to clarify certain things, look, um, God made uh, unconditional unilateral promises to Israel in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, and 17. And God promised that Israel would own a piece of real estate called Palestine from the Nile River up to the where Euphrates in, in Iraq. That has never been totally fulfilled. It has partly fulfilled to a great extent in the time of Davidic rule and also in the Salmonic rule, but never has Israel been able to have all of the land that was promised. God doesn't make a promise and God can't fulfill. Every promise God makes, He will come through on it. And uh, so that unilateral promise that God gave must be fulfilled and will be fulfilled and that's why Israel is so crucial as part of the prophetic history that is yet to come. Secondly, God made a Davidic promise that one would sit on the throne of David and would sit on that throne forever. That cannot be a human being. That is the David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that will sit on the throne of David and rule that the Bible has promised that. And that is found in Second Samuel chapter 7. So you've got the unilateral promise made to Abraham about the land. You have the uh, eternal promise made to David about one sitting on his throne forever, which has never happened. And then if you look at Psalm 89 for just a moment, Nathan. Psalm 89. 89 yeah. And... and uh, <coughs> What verse? Read verse 33. Psalm 89, verse 33 says, Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. If you read the whole, you don't read the whole psalm, it's about God committed faithfulness to the promises he made to Israel that those will not fail. Okay? If you look at verse 36 and 37. His seed shall endure forever in his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in heaven, Selah. Again, it's talking about uh, the promise he made to David. He's not going to break his faithfulness to David. It's exactly this. So there's going to be a future person sitting on the throne of David. And this person will be eternal and, and reign forever. And that's why the... the, the, uh, the 
millennial kingdom blends into the eternal state. See, it goes from one into the other, basically, because that's the promise. The, it, there would not be another throne after that. Christ will sit on the throne of, of eternity. The other thing is, uh, Nathan, look at Romans chapter 11, verse 27. He said, none of the apostles believe that Israel has a place in the future. Romans 11, verse 29. Verse 29 says, For the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Yeah, the reason why I gave you that, from verse number chapter 9 to chapter 11, is dealing with the nation of Israel, about her past, her present, and her future. But notice, when God gives a gift and God calls, he doesn't retract it. Mm. Okay, and that's, he promised that gift to Israel, the land, and that promise is, uh, will not be revoked. It has to be fulfilled, etc. And then look at, um, same Romans, look at verse, uh, it, this is a difficult part to read. Uh, I don't know if you want to read all of that, but look at um, Romans 9, Romans 11, sorry. Uh, 11 to 26. 11 to 26. Yeah. All right, I'll get started on it. We'll see how it goes. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather, through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Okay, stop there for just a moment. But the Apostle Paul is explaining the role of Israel in the future. And and, and what he's explaining that Israel's fall, fall was designed to bring about this conversion of the Gentiles. So Israel's unbelief and falling away from the Lord resulted in the Gentiles being grafted into God's plan. Go ahead. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 13. For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify mine office. If by any means I may provoke to emulation them which are my flesh and might save some of them, for it is the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be by but life from the dead? That's the point there. Paul is saying that uh, he does everything, even though he's an apostle of the Gentiles, to win some of these Jews. And Paul's argument is this. If the fall of the Jews resulted in the salvation of the Gentiles. What about when they are fully restored now? Hmm. You see? So it's going to be restored. Go ahead. Go ahead. For if the first fruit be holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root be holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert grafted in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree, boast <coughs> not against the branches. But if thou boast, thou bearest not the root, but the root thee. The essence of that, basically, is Paul is saying that they're always in God's plan. The Jews are in God's plan. But some went off into unbelief. So the nation is in unbelief. The Gentiles were now grafted into God's plan. That's what he's talking about. Okay, go ahead. Thou wilt say then, the branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear. For if God spare not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, 
but toward thee goodness. If thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. Go ahead. Verse 23 says, And also, and they also, if they abide not still in unbelief, shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if thou wert cut off of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree, how much more shall these, which be the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has ah, come. Ah, there it is, see? Until the, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And remember, the fullness of the Gentiles brings this whole show to an end. This is where uh, Gentiles' power began with Nebuchadnezzar, and it comes on to the end time with the end time power. So go ahead, read that. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as it is written, There shall come out of Zion the Deliverer, and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. That's exactly what's going to happen, and that's where Israel is part of God's plan uh, in terms of the future. Now, we don't have time to go through all this Bible prophecy, but if you look at Daniel, don't look at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. It talks about the seven last years for dealing with the Jews, which is called the tribulation period. I'm just trying to point out here, that he said that none of the apostles talk about Israel having a future. Very, very clearly, read Romans chapter 11. This is what Paul is talking about, that it's coming a time when uh, Israel is going to be saved as a nation. He has to purge Israel first out. And if you read the book of Ezekiel, he said, I will bring them into the wilderness, and I will speak to them, and I will purge out them. And that's what the tribulation period is about. It's putting Israel in the crucible so that um, God purifies the nation, and they're brought to belief uh, in God. But they return in unbelief. The tribulation is going to be time when God purges the nation and bring them back to faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, I just said that Hanegraaff has no place for Israel, all the promises that God gave to uh, Israel are now transferred because of this replacement theology the church has replaced. So um, I would say to any person who wants a little, a far more detailed um, response to Hanegraaff's um, false teaching on this matter, uh, normangeisler.com. And uh, look for the Hanegraaff Apocalypse Code. And if you did that, you're going to get a whole section dealing with the subject and bringing great clarity. Uh, for example, take the thousand years as talked about in Revelation chapter 20, uh, Nathan. He said there's not a little tw- thousand, thousand years. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he claims uh, that there's no little uh, chronology there. You know, you've got a, the resurrection before and the resurrection after. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that one of those resurrections, spiritual resurrection, one of the spirit. He confuses the whole thing because of his approach to Bible prophecy. His method of interpretation is the allegorical method of interpretation. And because of that, um, he finds himself... Uh, and, and <laughs> Funny thing about it, he's talking about discovering the prophetic code as though he has some new, uh, finally, I've I've got the solution to the the book of Revelation. When you read it, quite frankly, he's put it in darkness rather than light. But again, that's because he has a wrong principle of interpretation. Pastor, can a person 
have a wrong interpretation of Revelation and be a born-again Christian? Of course. Uh, as a matter of fact, very uh, few theological books that are used in seminaries today, well, well there might be an exception now, most of those theologians are like Strong and Hodge were amillennialists. They didn't believe in the, in the millennium. And most of them... Uh, were preterists as well in terms of the interpretation of the Bible. But uh, we've never made Bible prophecy uh, a basis of, of salvation, uh, salvation by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And let's be very honest with you as, as well. There are different methods of interpretation. It's not a debate of whether the Bible is the Word of God or not. The problem today when it comes to this era of Bible prophecy uh, has to do with is the Bible to be taken literal when it comes to the book of Revelation, or is it an allegory of what took place in the past or what's going to happen in the future? Some people think that the book of Revelation is an allegory about the struggle between good and evil and that finally good is going to win. Uh, but again, John outlines in in uh, in uh, in, um, in Revelation 1.19, I'll tell you things that are things which are and things which are to come. And the book of Revelation itself divides what it is. The things that are are the, the, the churches, right? The things which are going to come has to do with the prophecy yet to come, etc., etc. So it, it explains itself and gives you an outline of the book itself. So there's different methods of interpretation or approaches of interpretation of Bible prophecy. But what about salvation? What is true salvation? Well, uh, salvation is, is so clear and so simple. Uh, if you take very clear verses uh, when Paul was asked the question sirs what must I do to be saved and the answer was believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved uh, there's clear teaching again by Paul in, in the book of, Ro- uh, book of Romans where Paul said for my gr- Ephesians for your grace are you saved through faith and that not yourselves it's the gift of God not to works lest any man should boast so salvation is a matter of faith and trust in Jesus Christ it has nothing to do with your works nothing to do with your merits it's just putting your faith and trust in Christ but I would like to add this uh, Nathan it involves the matter of repentance as well Nobody can be saved who doesn't want to repent of their sin. If you want to be saved, but you want to hold on to your sin and continue to practice your sin and living in your sin, you can never be saved. You've got to understand that salvation has to do with delivering you from the the power and the guilt and the condemnation of sin. And when you come to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, it's because you want a new beginning in life, you want a new start, you want to be a new person, and you want to serve the Lord and live for the Lord. You're listening to That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live interactive program. Pastor, our next question relates to the COVID vaccine. And I have just a short uh, clip of audio from a video clip that has been questioned. And then I'll read the (coughs) listener's question. Researchers in Britain are calling on the government to halt their use of coronavirus vaccines immediately after discovering potentially toxic side effects. Here's one America's Pearson Sharp. And that video clip goes on for about four minutes uh, with a lot of different uh, people being quoted. Good evening, Pastor and Brother Nathan. Pastor, what is wrong with them people that saying so many things? What we must believe? Well, I know that I trust Jesus Christ is the way, the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper. So who want to say that they want? Let them talk. You telling them that Jesus loves them and he is not willing that they should perish, but that all sounds commonplace, they do not believe. 
but anything else they believe. So, Pastor, what do you think about this video? And I'm sure you probably listened to it more in its entirety, Pastor, but what are your thoughts? Well, look, um, I think that there are legitimate concerns about the COVID vaccine, some of them at least. Um, I think that um, some of them are having toxic effects. I, I just learned on the recently that some of the uh, pilots that travel that do in, in airplanes, some of them have died because of blood clots. And you know, when you get that altitude, uh, it can free up your your blood clots. I remember my wife when my wife had an operation here, and. Um, when she got to Barbados and they took her and did an X-ray on her. Now she left Antigua and was told that she had no blood clots. She had a, a, a test, and no blood clots. When she got to Barbados and she went for uh, MRI and they examined her, she had blood clots going from her foot right up to almost to her heart. And they mm. asked her how in the world you got up to Barbados. And they asked her that question. And when she told them by plane, she said, nah, nah, you could not have come by plane. You should be dead. Wow. <laughs> so there is something there about these blood clots, and I think that's a legitimate concern. Look, the problem is that we are now living in an era where there's a breakdown of trust and a breakdown in knowing who to believe. And the reason for that is that the three major sources of uh, information have become politicized. That is the government. Uh, they just spin whatever they want to spin. That has to do with the press and the media who have now aligned itself with government. Uh, and that has to do also with the scientific community, which is also hidden a lot of facts about the COVID vaccine, its sources, etc. It's now being made known that they knew a lot more about this whole thing, where it came from, etc., etc. So people are in a state where they don't know what to believe any longer. You can't trust the press, you can't trust the government, you can't even trust the scientists. And as a result of that, there are legitimate questions that are being raised uh, by people about this whole matter. Um, You can't even trust who. World Health Organization because they're in bed with the Chinese and they've hidden the fact about what's been happening. You can't trust Fossey, who is contradicting himself so much. He uh, he is like a, a I don't know he's like a genie. He uh, he's a chameleon. He just changes everything. You can't trust him as well. And, and as a result of that, you've got all this distrust. My my feeling on the on the video is that um, I don't know the the persons who made the video, but. Uh, if the source is credible, I think that we ought to pay some attention to it. Um, I myself uh, have taken the vaccine. I've had uh, taken it twi- twice, so I should be covered. But I did that because basically my age. I think if I was much younger, I would have had second thoughts or maybe third thoughts because of the confusion that is there. But I can't take the risk at this point in time in my life. And I also trending towards type 2 diabetes. So those are all the factors that led me to go into taking the vaccine. Um, but I, I would say to people, um, you know, listen to the facts, try to weigh the evidence, and don't listen to one source. Uh, see if the, there's a, a, some kind of a consistency in what people are saying. I'm not part of the, the, the global conspiracy idea that this is part of the Antichrist to get everybody under control I, I don't I don't buy that but I do feel that um, you should listen to, to the information and, and make song judgments on this matter the other thing is see if what they're saying is confirmed by other um, biblical uh, institutions like CRI the Christian Research Institute or CARM 
which has to do with the uh, uh, apologetic CRM. See what they're saying, and the other good websites, Christian websites on these matters. See what they're saying. If they're giving you some, they'll give you objective information as far as that is concerned. Um, but I, I would just say is that I don't make any rash decisions or conclusions on these matters uh, without having research and having pro- proper data on the matter. But for me, I had no problem with the video. I think it's useful to be cautioned on these matters. On the other hand, as I said, uh, I see nothing wrong in taking the, the, the vaccine if you feel that you should take it. And I would encourage you to take it as well because I don't think these islands are ever going to get back uh, on foot in terms of the economies until we get back to some kind of normalization here. And even people coming in from overseas, if we uh, can't indicate that our people are vaccinated, uh, I think you're going to find that tourists are reluctant to come in uh, into a country that uh, the people are just staying away from the vaccine. So I think it has re- serious repercussions and we have to weigh all of these factors. But it's a matter of conscience and uh, that's what I have to say about that. Pastor, we have more questions than we're going to be able to answer tonight. So one quick question before the program wraps up. A WhatsApp question from Antigua. What is blaspheming, Pastor? I don't understand. Can you please tell me? Well, normally we associate blaspheming with just casual uh, cursing. But when you go into Scripture um, and you look at it both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, you discover that it's, it's far more than that. In the Old Testament, it has to do with contemptuous speech that utters total disrespect and total disregard for God. In, other, uh, in the Old Testament, the literal word means to spurn or to treat with contempt. It means to revile. When you come to the New Testament, it means to slander or speak lightly of and to use uh, contemptuous speech again. But blasphemy is more than just speech, uh, because we learn um, in Matthew two, uh, Matthew twenty six, Mark two, Luke five, Mark fourteen, and John f- uh, eleven, John ten, that Jesus Christ was charged with blasphemy. One of the charges: this man blasphemeth, and the reason why he was charged with blasphemy is because they felt that Jesus was claiming rights and power that belonged to God and they didn't see Jesus Christ as God. So blasphemy also involves not just speech against God, but making claims and and, uh, assuming to yourself certain rights and powers that belong to God and claiming those as well. And then in uh, Matthew 3, Matthew 12, and Matthew 11, our Lord points out about the unforgivable sin, the person blasphemes against the Holy Spirit. What is that? Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan, Beelzebub. So the three elements that involve in blasphemy, it is using slanderous speech against God. It also involves claiming the attributes and powers that belong to God. And not only that, it involves uh, taking the works of the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is doing and attribute those works to Satan and his emissaries. So I hope that helps the person understand what what blasphemy is. Pastor, for the person who's listening and says, you know, in my past life, or maybe even a month ago, I did some of those things. Is there hope for me? What should I do? Your hope is found in Jesus Christ. If Christ uh, could say to his Father, Father, forgive them who crucified him, 
you haven't crucified him. That is probably the worst thing any person could have done to crucify the Lord himself, but he was willing to forgive. And my, my answer to you is very simple. Go to him, confess your sin, put your faith and trust in him, ask for forgiveness, and he's promised he will forgive you. Thank you for listening to That's Truth tonight. If we did not get to your question, uh, fret not. We will get to it at the beginning of next week's episode, Lord willing. Have a great night and keep your radio dial tuned to CRL. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.